The scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Has it occurred to anyone else that as one grows older, time moves quicker? Someone once explained that to me by saying that as you age, every year you pass through is a smaller percentage of your life. Doesn't it seem like just yesterday we were celebrating Easter together? Then we had one week of summer missions, and now it's August. And we all know August is going to be gone in a flash, as will September, October, November, and it's Christmas. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Christmas and Easter together in a flash of a moment. We're looking at the book of Romans. We've looked uh, twice at the first verse of the first chapter. We've seen that Paul has introduced himself as bound, called, and set apart. Then he's introduced his content as the gospel of God, not good advice, but God's great good news. Today, we're finally going to get out of the first verse and look at verses 2, 3, and 4, where Paul expands some of the contours and content of this great gospel. And what we will find immediately in these Three short, brief, terse verses are is a text that could be used for either Christmas or Easter. In Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, uh, we have Christmas and Easter combined. First, Paul tells us about this gospel of God that it is a promised gospel. All of the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled and come true and foreshadowed and delivered upon in the gospel of God. Look at verse 2. The gospel of God is that which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What God was preparing for in the Old Testament, he delivers and shows in the coming of Christ over millennia. Over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Hebrew people went through tumultuous adventures and horrendous suffering. And they cried out and wondered whether Messiah would ever come. The good news was promised throughout the scriptures and God keeps his promises. So our text today is evidence that God can be trusted. God is faithful. God keeps his promises, all of them. 
Some of you I know, and all of us at times, are walking through difficult paths. It may look as though God has forgotten his promises to you. Death may threaten to take our deepest earthly loves and seem to have a strong and final word. Courts of justice can sometimes seem cruel and anything but just and impervious to our deepest prayers. Christians we know all too well from the news not only face persecution in our day, but in some parts of the world are being threatened with the genocide of an entire population. As hymn writer Robert Lowell put it, and once to every man and nation, it seems that the cause of evil prospers and upon the throne is wrong. Or Malti Babcock, I looked up this hymn writer, he was a clergyman in New York City in the 19th century. Malti Babcock puts it similarly, and this is my father's world. He writes, the wrong seems oft so strong. But both hymn writers are confident God will have the final word. Lowell makes the turn this way. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And Malty Babcock follows him by saying, Let us ne'er forget that God is the ruler yet. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that those are other than just sweet words, beautiful words, good words? How do we know that they are true words? And the answer in this text is the gospel. It is because even though there may be millennia, even though there may be hundreds of years, God has shown, he has demonstrated, he has acted in Christ that he is faithful to his promises. If you are walking through the darkest of times, or even the valley of the shadow of death, remember that the gospel means, among other things, that in the end, in the final day, God has the last word and is faithful to his promises. That's one of the contours of the gospel in these verses. It, it runs on. On and it says the promise is communicated through prophets in God's word. To say that these are writings are holy, God's holy word, is to say that they are unique, they are distinctive, they are set apart, they are one of a kind, they are like no other writing. They aren't inspired like a good author might be inspired that way. They aren't inspired like a good script. They are inspired, illumined, written. These aren't the words of men. These are God's word. If you want to know why we have Holy Bible inscripturated, on, uh, engraved on many of our texts, it comes from this verse. The gospel of God is given not by prophets, through prophets, and is communicated in God's holy word. Not words of men, but words of God. 
On our vacation, really family trip, I had the privilege of worshiping at uh, Alistair Begg's church in Cleveland, Ohio. Really one of the great expositors at the time. He'd just come back from uh, some time away and he said, uh, people were asking me what I'm going to preach about Sunday. And he said, uh, I don't know. He's a Scot. I don't know. It's whatever's coming up next in the text. And then he paused for a while to explain that. That's why we do what we do here. We expound the word. We open up the word of God because we believe this isn't the word of men, but the word of God. I did a really just less than half an hour, Beth, but a little bit of running down uh, hymn writers and hymn texts. I thought one of these texts might have come from a text written by Harry Emerson Fosdick. It didn't. But I read a little bit about Harry Emerson Fosdick, really an interesting man and and, uh, a servant of Christ in many ways. But... He said he was dedicated to reinventing the pulpit, not as a verse-by-verse exposition of the word, because this is a book of progressive revelation, our best thoughts about God as they have unfolded during a time. And so he eschewed, he left behind a verse-by-verse exposition. This church, this pulpit, my ministry is dedicated to a different tack. We believe uh, that this is God's holy word, given through prophets, but his word communicated in this inscripturated text. Um, I believe in expository preaching theologically, and I've just shared that. Uh, I um, stayed in school as long as I could. I think I was in school almost constantly until I was almost 30. And if I were to speak about, all of you know this, what what I knew and what I thought about and what I thought thought was good, it would probably all be wrong. And even then, I would run out of it in about two months. Um, One of the reasons I believe in expository preaching is not only theologically but practically at Week after week, we turn to this word, and the question is not what we're going to say, but out of the vast richness of the text, how can we find those two or three or maybe four insights that it will be valuable for us to walk with during the week? That's expository preaching. God promises gospel, and he communicates it to us by his inspired, authoritative, holy word. Now, If some of you are running ahead of me, you might well ask, and it's a good question, well, isn't the Scripture that Scripture speaks about, the Old Testament, isn't that the Bible of Jesus? Isn't that the Bible of Paul? Why do we treat Paul's words that way? And the answer is that it was already given us in the first verse. Paul says, I was called as an apostle of Christ, and that office of apostleship, is the office that through the apostles we have the authority and foundation for the teaching ministry of the church. Paul shares this with us at many times in uh, 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. He says, We speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit. Just as the Old Testament scriptures were inspired by God, so Paul understands his own writings to be. So does Peter. In his uh, second epistle, he identifies the writings of Paul with Scripture. So, 
We speak out of this for the message of God's gospel given through the prophets, but in God's holy word. Thirdly, what does God say concerning this gospel, but that it concerns his son? The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand and through his prophets in the holy scriptures, Concerning his son, the gospel of God has to do with the son of God. God has promised good things to the world. And the good things he has promised comes through his son. Whatever the gospel is, it concerns Jesus. Paul tells us that the gospel, the message of the Christianity, is about Jesus Christ. Who was brought to us, the text uh, comes on, born as the son of David, but who is declared as the Son of God. There's an important distinction there. He became the Son of David, but he didn't become the Son of God. The eternal, timeless, one-of-a-kind, monogenes in the Greek, one-of-a-kind, distinctive. Aren't we all sons and daughters of God? We are children of God, and by availing ourselves of the righteousness of Christ, we can be adopted into being sons and daughters of Christ, brothers to Christ. But the text says that Jesus was a monogenes, unique, one of a kind, like no other. So our sonship and daughterhood is dependent upon and related to Christ's prior, unique, one of a kind, Eternal sonship to the Father. This eternal Son became born the Son of God. Right from the outset, we have the Christmas declaration of the Incarnation. Fully God, fully man. Son of David, Son of God. Here's the Gospel. Jesus came down. God descends. He became human. He takes our place. This means that Christ was utterly unique. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, that we can stand with him in glory. Every other religion uses its founder to introduce principles. The Christian faith uses principles to introduce it, us to its founder, the person of Christ. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. One of Stephanie's and my favorite places in New York City is Rockefeller Center. I also, isn't the internet wonderful? I did some research, uh, looked up images of Rockefeller Center again, and found out that it was uh, not architecturally well-received initially. The New York Times architecture critic called it the Rockefeller Center mediocrity magnified. But uh, eight years later after it was built, he softened his view, liked it a little bit more. I love it uh, to this day. And one of its sort of Art Nouveau, and we, we love to eat uh, the outside uh, restaurant, cafe, right there in the plaza where you uh, see ice skating in the winter. But Perhaps the most monumental edifice of the Rockefeller Center on Fifth Avenue is uh, the Atlas of uh, Atlas holding the world, just bending under its burden right across the street on Fifth Avenue, St. Patrick's Cathedral. 
is another statue of the boy Jesus. Unusual to see that, probably eight or nine years old. And in that statue, across the street, the young Jesus effortlessly is holding the entire globe. There's the choice we have. We can try to have hold the entire world on our shoulders and inevitably fail. Or we can give our lives to Jesus Christ. Uh, the world is yours anyway, but I give you my life to hold, to be Lord, to carry, and to trust. The gospel concerns the Son of God who came and descended and lived with us. Christmas. The text run on, runs on and says he is also declared the Son of God by the power of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. He is declared by the power of the Spirit of God through the resurrection, Easter. That is devastating as well as encouraging news. Why do I say devastating? Because verses 3 and 4, obviously, something has happened. He is raised from the dead. That means he died. And messiahs don't die. Messiahs reign and they rule and they conquer. And those of us who have been around church for a while know that that was the Hebrew dream. That we will have one day in which the heel of Rome will not be crushing down upon our neck, in which we will be delivered from our enemies when we are corralled on mountainsides. That day will come. And it will come when the Messiah has come. And now the Messiah has come, and Messiahs don't die. But part of this gospel is that they do. And we will walk through valleys of shadows of death. But the promise of the gospel is there will come a day, and that has come proleptically, which is a great word, which means we reach out to the future. And it is present. It is present where there's a foretaste, a deposit, a seal, a down payment. In the individual resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have seen the history Someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Finally, there's a phrase that only occurs here in the New Testament. We're called about this. We said all this comes to pass by the spirit of holiness. Now that surely means perhaps many things, but at least two things. First of all, it means that the spirit is involved in the resurrection of Christ and the Spirit will involve, be involved in your resurrection and in mine. The same Spirit that gives life, the same Spirit that creates life, the same Spirit that sustains life, also restores life and renews life and brings back life even from the dead. Jesus was raised by the Spirit of holiness. It means that the Spirit is involved in the resurrection. Perhaps there is another meaning, too, and for this, let me uh, go to one commentary who writes, Dealing with the dead was dirty business. When King Saul wanted to commune with the dead, he went to the witch of Endor. That's in 1 Samuel. It was secretive and illicit. Dealing with the dead has been a kind of black magic, not a beautiful, clean, holy thing. 
So talking of an executed dead man being raised from the dead must have sounded to many ears, many Hebrew ears, as absolutely horrible and gross and dirty and unclean, like dark sorcery and black magic. So this is the reason we might conjecture that Paul, under the movement of the Spirit, uses this phrase, which he never uses again, the Spirit of holiness. God's action of conquering death and touching death and bringing life back from the death isn't ugly or unclean. It is the most powerful and beautiful and holy and unique thing that could ever be. It was a holy thing to do. So this text has shown us that God's gospel, God's gospel, is a promised gospel. And that promise is communicated in his holy word to us that we can trust. And it concerns his son. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And it is declared to us as true, not as some vain, fond hope, but even in the midst of the reversals of life that we will know in this time, as true because of the power of the resurrection itself, which has been made possible by the Spirit of God, and which is covered with holiness, His beauty, His purity, His cleanness, His goodness. That's the gospel, and that is good news. Living in holy God, we are awed and astonished by your word, how it speaks with clarity and power and purpose, how it gives us confidence and strength for the living of our days, how we can put one foot after another even in the most dark and difficult places. Because we know you have been there before us in Christ, and you have promised a new day and a different day, and because of Jesus Christ, we know we can trust it, for it is in his name we pray.